Well, for one last time this year, until we pick back up with our series in January, I invite you to turn with me to Daniel, once again, Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6, today we've reached the very famous story of Daniel in the lion's den. Uh, But more than that, we've reached the end of the first half of the book of Daniel. Part of what makes this book so mysterious, so challenging, is that the first six chapters of Daniel are narrative, they're stories, but the beginning in chapter 7, the second half of the book, are all visions and prophecies. And so it's very fitting for us today uh, to kind of conclude with the first half of the book, Take a break over the holidays and pick back up in January with the very different and very challenging genre uh, in chapters 7 through 12. So, our passage is Daniel 6, the entire chapter. Let us read it. Let us remember that these are the words of God. Let us receive this word as if God Himself was speaking to us today, receiving them in faith. Daniel 6. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps and to be throughout the whole kingdom and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one to whom these satraps would give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault, because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint unless this Daniel against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps and the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for thirty days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning this injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within thirty days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who was one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction which you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. And the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. And the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. And the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. 
Then at, then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. And he came near to the den where Daniel was. He cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? And king, then Daniel said to the king, O oh, king, live forever. My God has sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and language that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree. That in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For He is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. And His dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. Amen. This is God's Word. Join me again in prayer. Father, we do pray as we stop, as we pause. After hearing Your Word, we ask, Lord, that You would help prepare our hearts to receive the explanation of it, the preaching of it, the proclamation of it. We pray, Lord, that Jesus Christ, Your Son, would have free reign among us, that He would proclaim liberty to the captives, that He would give sight to the blind, that He would free those who are oppressed, that He would proclaim to us the year of the Lord's favor. Oh Lord, we wait expectantly for You to speak to our hearts. Answer us, we ask, through Your Son, Jesus, and our Lord. Amen. Daniel in the Lion's Den. One of the most famous One of the most popular stories in all the Old Testament. One of the most beloved stories. It's a story that often fills us with wonder as children. We hear Daniel in the lion's den. We see it depicted in children's books. Part of the amazement of Daniel in the lion's den is because we know the fierceness of lions. We know how horrible it would be to meet one out in the wild. And so to think of Daniel... Resting peacefully all night in a den of hungry lions, it is amazing to contemplate. But of course, the story of Daniel in the lion's den is a story that's only best understood in light of the rest of the book. On one hand, Daniel in the lion's den is a kind of capstone. It's a kind of summary, a conclusion to the first half of the book. One of the themes, particularly of the first half of the book, is how the people of God are to stay faithful in unfaithful times. You see, again, one last test then. A test of faithfulness for this servant of the Lord and how he stood firm even to the end. But on the other hand, Daniel in the lion's den also prepares us and sets the stage for the second half of the book. Because when we turn to chapter 7, what what do we immediately read? Daniel's vision of the four beasts. And the first beast is particularly pointed out as resembling a lion. Well, what then do the beasts in the second half of the book represent? As we will see in the coming weeks and months ahead, they typify world powers. Earthly kings, earthly kingdoms, fierce, hungry, ready to devour. And so in this sense, Daniel in the lion's den is a kind of word picture. It's kind of a a real life illustration of the people of God living in the midst of a hostile and ferocious world. 
For us to really kind of parse this out and understand this kind of living parable, as it were, we need to understand the greatest threat to the people of God as presented in the book of Daniel. Just think about that for a second. What is the greatest threat to the people of God in the book of Daniel? Well, I hope you've seen as we've worked through this, it's not kings. They've shown to be foolish, right? And ignorant and raging and tyrannical, but powerless. It's not rulers that is the greatest threat to God's people. It's not also suffering or persecution. The greatest danger to the people of God in the book of Daniel is the danger of compromise. A message that resonates through every generation. Israel is in the world. They're out of their holy kingdom, the picture of God's eternal kingdom in the nation of Israel. They're in the world now. They can't help that. But will they become of the world? That is, will they be conformed to the world? In this sense, Daniel, the book of Daniel, I should say, stands out among Old Testament books for how it actually avoids naming false gods or idols. If you've noticed, there's no Baal in the book of Daniel. There's no Dagon. Marduk was a Babylonian god. He's not mentioned at all. This is very unique and odd uh, in Old Testament literature. And the reason for this is because the false gods in the book of Daniel are kings and kingdoms. The great threat of compromise centers upon the idolatry of the ultimate allegiance to kings, kingdoms, government. The idol of government to fix all our problems, to keep us safe, to give us the good life, to provide everything that we might need or want. End injustice, unite the people, the idolatry of government. Just a brief survey of the first five chapters. It's very easy to see this. We see with chapter 1, the testing of food. The question is, will God's people be conformed to the spirit of the age and become dependent upon the king for their health and wealth? Chapter 2 and 3, with the great statue of Nebuchadnezzar. Will God's people look to the state to unify the nations? Will they go along with the crowd in the name of political correctness and refuse to upset the status quo? Chapter 4, will they get caught up in Nebuchadnezzar's error that, you know, in what man can accomplish and what nations can achieve for their own glory? Chapter 5, will they look to a king like Belshazzar to provide them the good life, the joy and the pleasure and security of this world? Same thing now in chapter 6. Will the fear of the king's word and the king's power ultimately prevail in their hearts and lives as certain and sure in saving. All of these stories harp on how the state always tends to deify itself. The states and rulers always tend to move toward demanding or claiming our ultimate allegiance. That's part of their rise and fall. And all of these stories harp on the reality of our own sinful tendency to be conformed to the society around us. To be of the world and not just be in the world. And to give our ultimate allegiance and and set our ultimate trust and hope on the kings and kingdoms and cultures of this world. This then is how Daniel in Lion's Den brings together the first six chapters of narrative and the last six chapters of prophecy. What we see here today is that the kings and kingdoms of this world are indeed lion-like. They're beastly, they're powerful, they're fierce, they're hostile. Eventually, they always bring conflict to the kingdom of God. Their roar is terrifying. But with the presence and the blessing of God, the lions of this earth are harmless to the Christian. For if God is on our side, What can man do to me? That's what we see here today. And as we walk through this, I want to uh, organize our thoughts under four headings. Four headings. The first, we see the roar of the beast. 
the roar of the beast. Daniel 6 opens with the nations raging against the kingdom of God and the peoples plotting against the servant of the Lord, all in vain. Remember from the last chapter that Babylon has fallen. The Medes and the Persians now rule the world, and amazingly, through all this turmoil, Daniel has persevered. All the way from Judah, taken in exile, through Nebuchadnezzar, through Belshazzar, and now through, uh, through Darius, Daniel has persevered. He is, in many respects, a symbol of the kingdom of God. Kings and kingdoms rise and fall. They come and go, but the kingdom of God outlasts them all. This is Daniel. It is important to note that despite what, how the children's books and, I don't know, Veggie Tales maybe depict um, Daniel in the lion's den, uh, he was not a young man. He was at least 75 years old, maybe even closer to 90 at this point. This is where he's at at this point in the story. And you know, it's Sinclair Ferguson who points out this probably wasn't how uh, Daniel planned to spend his retirement years, huh? He's not sitting on a beach. He's not cruising the, uh, the, the, around the country in his RV. He's still serving this pagan king in this pagan kingdom. God is still using him for good. And he still has one great, even the greatest trial to endure. There's no retirement in the Christian life. There's no age limit to our usefulness in God's kingdom. There's no point in life where we might think that the most difficult trials and tests are behind us. Here I think of Pilgrim's Progress and how a Christian on his journey has to cross the river, the river symbolizing death, and how that serves to be his greatest trial. This is what we see in the book of Daniel. All the little things before in the first five chapters had prepared Daniel for this one last great trial at the end of his life when he might have been tempted to think, all those things are behind me now. I can enjoy my golden years. Don't think of life that way. But what we see is King Darius organizing his cabinet, appointing rulers over his kingdom. 120 satraps, that's uh, about one for each province at that time, and satrap means uh, protector of the realm. And then we have three high officials, of which Daniel is one of them. One of them. That's a, a very high and honorable position for Daniel. In fact, he excelled to such an extent that uh, at the end of verse 3, we're told that the king had planned to set him over the whole kingdom. What a great model for us on how to live in a hostile and pagan world. You know, the king, the kingdom, the culture may be thoroughly godless and pagan. And, and Daniel had labored for 70 years with, with godly influence and worked towards change, but he had nothing to show for it. And yet he continues to pray and to seek the welfare of the city. And God blessed him in that. But of course, there's always bound to be conflict between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. As our Lord says, you know, because you're not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, the world hates you. And I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. That's what's happening here for these officials come together and they they launch a plan to bring Daniel down. It seems like maybe they were jealous of him. Uh, Maybe his integrity was a threat to them and and their desire for corruption and control. Whatever the reason is, there's a spiritual opposition here. They hate him. And so they conspire against him. They, They try to dig up dirt on him. We're all familiar with this, aren't we? It's one reason why we hate election season, right? When there's candidates running for office, you know, each one tries to dig up as much trash on the other one to assassinate their character, whether it's credible or not. That's politics. That's the way the world works, unfortunately. This is what they're doing to Daniel. But they, they realize that you know, their schemes and their plots and their raging are all in vain because they, they can't find anything. Daniel wasn't a hypocrite. He didn't have any skeletons in his closet. He was blameless. He was above reproach. He wasn't saying one thing and doing another. 
Who he was in public was who he was in private. Who he was in his office was who he was in his own home. The model of godliness. But then, they realize they know him better than they think. If they find one way to get to him. Verse 5, if they find a connection with the law of his God. So they launch a plan. They approach the king with high praise. Oh king, live forever. They present themselves as just honestly wanting the best for him and his kingdom. They claim to be the voice of the people. Have you ever heard of that from a politician before? Verse 7, everyone in your kingdom has come together and we, we all agree on this. It's all a show. They aren't concerned about the king. He's a pawn in their hands for them to try to get what they want. And, and no, not all the officials were in agreement. Daniel was one of the three highest officials. He wasn't consulted. They're lying. And not only are they lying, but they're flattering the king too. In verse 7, um, the nature of this edict, that whoever makes a petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, king, shall be cast into the den of lions. They're trying to flatter the king. We just are out so that people recognize just how important you are. Just what a great guy you are. It's important that we read this and we understand that um, this isn't really a religious ordinance. Uh, Don't misread this. Not overtly, explicitly religious. Uh, This isn't a suggestion that the king was a god that should be worshipped. That that wasn't really a part of Babylonian culture. This is rather an attempt to unify the kingdom. Everyone believed that the gods had placed the king over them. And so he was... You know, as we saw with Nebuchadnezzar in the tree, uh, he was their source of blessing in kind of a mediator sort of way. So to show your love and to give preeminence to the king is one way in which you would honor the gods. So they're not calling the people of the kingdom to abandon their god or their way of worship. It wasn't explicitly against the Jews, for example, it wouldn't have forbid them from worshiping Yahweh. It was simply a call for the people to show that their ultimate allegiance was to the king. This is similar to a principle of Marxism. It calls the people to show a higher commitment to the state than to their personal religion. You don't have to abandon your religion. It just needs to be subservient to the greater needs of society. Of course, it's not hard to see the parallels to this in our day. The pressure in our society, keep your faith to yourself. Don't impose it on anyone. Privatize it. Don't bring it to bear in the civil realm or in the social realm. Nobody in our country cares if you're a Christian, just as long as you play along, right? Right? Just as long as, as, as you, you, know, you still pursue what is best for everyone else, this is a very subtle way of, of making God out of government. But the state, higher than your devotion to the Lord. But the kicker here in verse 8 is how they say, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it can't be changed. King, don't you know that you can make this gospel Don't you know that your word is immutable? Don't you know that your word is so powerful that not even your own hand can change it? The king, in many respects, is trapped here. Trapped by his own gullibility. Trapped by his own sense of self-importance. Who doesn't want to make the people happy? Who doesn't want to unite the king and ensure that it's not fractured by rival competing religions? To say the word, king, and your word will be written in stone. It will be codified on our books forever. Brethren, this is the roar of the beast. This is the rage of the nations. This is the plot of the people against the Lord and His anointed. And the the danger here is that idolatry of putting Caesar before the Lord, putting Caesar's word, putting the law of the land above the law of our God. So the king signs the document. 
The pressing question now begins to subtly present itself. Whose word really is all-powerful? Whose word really is immutable so that it cannot be changed? Who does have the power to save? This leads secondly then to our next scene, the tenacity of faith. The tenacity, excuse me, of true faith. The tenacity of true faith. There we go. The roar of the beast is both literally and metaphorically terrifying to Daniel. The roar of the state is forcing him to choose to either obey God or man. But the roar of the lion is there as well. You know, a lion's roar can be heard up to five miles away. He knows what's waiting him. How does he respond? With a tenacity all of his own. Verse 10, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had the windows open to his upper, in his upper chamber toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. When Daniel knew that his life was at stake, when Daniel knew the sure and certain and unchanging consequences that awaited disobedience, he purposely, he decidedly, he intentionally went and prayed. Prayed three times a day facing Jerusalem. Um, neither of these are commands in Scripture. We're not told how many times we ought to pray. Neither are we told where we ought to kind of direct our gaze when we pray. Uh, But it seems as though Daniel prayed according to the time when the sacrifices would have been offered in Jerusalem. He kind of faces Jerusalem as a kind of longing for the restoration of the kingdom. You know, maybe as a reminder of where his true citizenship lies. Kind of like when we direct our gaze to heaven. And it's just as astounding as well that he, he gave thanks. The text makes... A specific uh, a point to, to, to mention that to us. He gave thanks. He's not just saying, Lord, help me escape death. Lord, I'm fearful of the roar of the lions. He's not just praying out of a sense of need. He gave thanks. And, and I would argue too, based upon how the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 2.1 tells us to pray for kings and authority and give thanks for them. I believe the thanksgiving here offered was Daniel thanking God for King Darius, even though he just signed his death sentence. Brother, this is a secret key to his faithfulness, his regular life of prayer, his regular posture of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving helps us cultivate a heart of trust and wisdom. It helps us cultivate a a certain confidence in the power and the goodness of God in all circumstances. I see what you've given me now. I see what you gave me in years past. I know then that you are unchanging, that you are good. And I give you thanks for these things. Thanksgiving is an indispensable aspect of prayer. In fact, Romans chapter 1, that's a mark of the ungodly. They know God, but they don't give thanks. Daniel isn't just saying, Lord, help me escape death. He's thanking God from whom all blessings flow. But the point, the key phrase here, what's really important is it says, as he had done previously. This was his regular habit. He was a man of spiritual discipline and regularity. No doubt as an old man, he had for many years cultivated a strict and disciplined practice, spiritual, uh, practice of spiritual disciplines. And there's a lot of wisdom here, particularly for, for, for the younger uh, people and children in our midst. Start now cultivating disciplines that, that you pray not just when you feel like it, you pray because that's what God has commanded. And it's one way you commune with Him. You attend church not just because you wake up and feel like it or want to see the people or feel like you're having your, a good day or a good week. You come, you're faithful because the Lord commanded it. Because that's the means you commune and glorify and 
of course, receive His blessings. Cultivate spiritual disciplines. Daniel's not a man of whims and emotions. He's not a man who just does these things when he feels like it or when it's convenient. He doesn't do these things because he has to do them, because he needs to do them. He does them because he is devoted to the Lord and the Lord alone. It's important to note as well that Daniel wasn't seeking trouble here. He's not trying to get punished. He's not purposely confrontational. He's not out to make a scene or get his name in the paper. He doesn't have a a martyr complex, as we might say. Now, he certainly doesn't do anything to hide it, but he just continues to do what he's always done. He doesn't pray because the king made the, 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 the edict. He prays because it was his habit. And this too is important. It's not rebellion. This is a difference between um, um, kind of, I don't know, nonviolent um, protest and, and what we might call insurrection or rebellion. Rebellion, insurrection, those are attempts to seize power. Daniel recognized, no, the power that Darius has is from God. I recognize that. But he appeals to a higher power because he knows there is a higher power. It's kind of like, um, you know, when David had several opportunities to King Saul, uh, kill Saul, King, kill King Saul. There we go. You know, he, had, he had two opportunities to slay the guy who was trying to kill him, to slay the guy who God said, I've ripped the kingdom from you. But he wouldn't do it. He refused to take matters in his own hands. He trusted in the Lord. And the Lord brought it about. And that's, that's what Daniel is doing here. And that's instructive for us in our day. When we see the abuse of power and the wickedness and the rulers and the government and the culture all around us. Now you might ask at this point though, does it have to be this way? Couldn't, have, couldn't Daniel have gotten around this? He didn't have to pray three times a day. He didn't have to open his windows so that everybody would see. He could have prayed silently to himself. He could have waited until he was in bed alone. He could have gone for a walk out in the fields, right, to pray there. He could have retreated to his closet to pray, like the Lord says, pray in secret. Matthew 6. But as one helpful observer said here, when prayer is fashionable, it's necessary to pray in secret. But when prayer is despised, To do so in secret can demonstrate a fear of man. He could have gotten around it. But in some sense, he knew that a statement needed to be made. The state has the authority from God to instruct us on a whole host of things. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Pay taxes to whom they are due. I don't like paying taxes. I know you don't either. But that's the authority that God has given Caesar. But the state does not have the authority to instruct us on matters related to God because we are called to render to God the things that are God's. That's why it's important to understand the distinction between church and state. The distinction between the earthly common kingdom and the redemptive heavenly kingdom. We need to understand this distinction so we know what to give Caesar and what to give God and not to confuse those two. I'm going to go out on a limb here, take a chance, but I can't help but see a parallel here with the COVID lockdowns from a couple years ago. Thankfully, our church never had to wrestle through these questions because the state of Tennessee rightly acknowledged they did not have the right to tell the church what they ought to do. But there were some states and there were many countries that forbid the church from gathering in worship during COVID. And I can't help but notice the parallels here. Think about uh, uh, King Darius, right? He was duped. He's not an evil king. 
He's not hostile to the people of God. That's clear from the chapter. He seemed to mean well. He seemed uh, never to intend to persecute. He wanted what was best for the people, even for Daniel and the Jews. And in the same way, the, the, the COVID lockdowns were not about persecuting Christians. The, the intention behind them, in some sense, was legitimate. There was some sense in which there was desire to see the health and safety of the people. But regardless, brethren, even when the state is friendly and well-meaning, the state has absolutely no right, no right whatsoever to tell the church what, when and if it can meet for worship. Well, can't we worship via live stream? They're not actually telling you you can't worship. Can't we worship in our families, in our homes? And it's not like the restriction was forever. It's 30 days here. Well, it was only temporary lockdowns. You know, they're not telling you you can't do it forever. Brother, look, different churches answered it in different ways. I recognize that. But simply as a matter of principle and on the basis of this passage, I argue, I fully support those churches that continue to gather in defiance of the COVID lockdowns. They modeled Daniel's faithfulness. And some of them paid a heavy price. Sometimes we are called to make a stand when the state transgresses their their God-given authority. And that's the tenaciousness of Daniel's faith. He is fierce in his faith because devotion to God trumped personal safety. He feared God more than he feared the roaring beast. And the word of God was more precious to him than the word of the king. Thirdly, moving quickly, the feebleness of the king. We then see Daniel's tenacious, but the beast, the king, he's feeble. The feebleness of the king. Verse 11, the men catch Daniel in the act. Verse 12, they run to go tattle to the king. They think they have the upper hand now. They think their plan worked. They tattle to the king to make sure, you know, to point out that he's one of the exiles. He's a foreigner. He can't be trusted here. They point out that uh, Daniel, as if Daniel personally reproached the king, he pays no attention to you, king. They appeal to his pride. They make sure to remind him that the edict cannot be changed. They kind of uh, anticipated that he wouldn't be happy. They knew how much he loved Daniel. And that's exactly, or I should say, that's why and, and we read in verse 14 that the king is distressed. He, he wanted to deliver Daniel. He kind of realizes, in a sense, that what he meant by the spirit of the law is not reflected in the letter of the law. Uh, nevertheless, uh, what must stand out to us here is the fact that it's amazing. The one to whom all prayers and petitions were to be made is now the one who is powerless to even bring about what he himself wants. It's a thick irony here. We are to see that immutability, that, that unchangingness is precisely what kings and kingdoms cannot claim. Kings and kingdoms rise and fall. They may claim as though their progress Their word, their law is powerful, unchanging, right, and fair, and eternal. But brethren, that belongs to God alone. Psalm 119, uh, 160. The sum of your word is truth, O God, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Darius' command cannot stop God's people from praying. Darius' edict cannot even help himself bring about what he wants. The king's attempt to claim absolute power has made him a puppet of his own officials and has made him a sucker to his own law. I said it before with Nebuchadnezzar, whenever we portray ourselves as something more than human, the less human we actually become. 
Darius, excuse me, Darius, is shackled by his very own abuse of power. Again, you see how a weak and an ineffectual king, even a friendly king, can be just as threatening to the people of God as a tyrant? It's part of the message. It's part of the message. Darius is not a raging monster like Nebuchadnezzar. He's not a hedonistic drunkard like Belshazzar. He tries to save Daniel. He tries for da- uh, uh, he longs for Daniel to escape death. But Caesar cannot save. He may roar like a lion, but he's as feeble as a dove. And we are fools if we put our hope in government, even good governments. We're fools if we put our hope in the strength of men. Ultimate allegiance and trust belong to God alone. Fourth and finally then, we see the triumph of the Lion of Judah. The triumph of the Lion of Judah. Verse 16 is sobering, it's heartbreaking. The king commands Daniel to be thrown into the den of lions. What a brutal, horrifying form of punishment. Just for praying to the Lord. We should all stop and ask ourselves, would we stand firm like this? Would we fear God more than we feared the king? But as the king is throwing him to the wild beasts, in verse 16 he says, May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. Uh, This is a confusing phrase in the original. It's hard to make sense of what he means. Maybe he's trying to encourage Daniel. Maybe he is expressing a sense of hope. Uh, Some people argue, really, he's just kind of trying to wash his hands from guilt. You know, like Pilate giving Jesus, delivering Jesus over to death. May your God deliver you. Have fun storming the castle. You know, good riddance. Regardless, Daniel is thrown into the pit of lions. A stone is put over the mouth of the pit. The king himself seals it to make sure it wasn't tampered with. And I hope all of this sounds very familiar. Our Lord Jesus was sentenced to death by the plots and schemes, accusations of evil men. Our Lord Jesus faced a ruler who wished to pardon him, but ultimately bowed to the will of the people. Our Lord Jesus entered a grave, a pit as it were, a a grave covered with stone and sealed with the signet of the king. Our Lord Jesus also went down into the pit. Our Lord Jesus also emerged victorious as Daniel did as well. There's a lot of foreshadowings and parallels here. They're striking. Well known. Our God is a God of providence. He brings about things uh, according to his own command and decree, decrees all things that come to pass, our confession states. He decreed this as a way of foreshadowing what Christ our Lord would face and go through and endure as well many years later. But with Daniel, his fate is literally sealed. He who will warn us of the lion like beast of the nations is himself surrounded by literal hungry lions. We know how hungry they are because of how they destroy Daniel's enemies here at the end. Note though that the narrative doesn't follow Daniel down to the pit. It's like the other stories in Daniel. The focus is on the king. We read of his sleepless night, his anxiety. His fasting, his worry of how he runs and makes haste to discover what has happened in the morning. Of his anguish when he cries out looking for Daniel. Notice what he says in verse 20 when he returns to the den in the morning, like an early morning, uh, Easter morning as it were. Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you? There's a hint of what Darius is about to learn. He's a living God. Daniel's God is not like the lifeless gods of this world. He's living. He's active. He's almighty. He's powerful. And and Daniel seems to recognize or hear this in the king's voice. 
Because he responds in verse 21, O King, live forever. The living God is preeminent, but by His life, we receive life. By His life, He can preserve the life of the King. Daniel is affirming the legitimacy of of Darius' kingship. And his rule is coming from the Lord. But the contrast really stands out. Daniel is calm and peaceful, even joyful. Where we just read of the king, like he had all these luxuries. He lived in the palace and he was restless and anxious and in anguish. Daniel sounds like he's spent the night in his own bed. He sounds as peaceful and as untroubled as Adam was before the fall, surrounded by the loving animals that God had given him to name. That's the picture actually we're to see here. A kind of foreshadowing of the new creation. Isaiah 11, the lion will lie down with the lamb. The perfect harmony of creation will be restored. It's also appealed to in Mark chapter 1 where Jesus tempted in the wilderness when He endures, the angels come and minister to Him and with the animals as well. In the same way, Daniel experienced the harmony of the unfallen created order. How? Through the presence of God. Daniel says, God sent His angel. Better to be in a den of hungry lions if the Lord is there than to be in a royal palace with every pleasure and luxury known to man and yet the Lord is absent. But the climax, the key, what we must not miss, is found in this little phrase toward the end of verse 22. Why was Daniel delivered? He says, because I was found blameless before God. The idea here of blameless is like spotless, without blemish. It's sacrificial language. A lamb without blemish. Daniel was the sacrificial lamb thrown into the midst of the lions. He was a representation of the people of God, devoured or set to be devoured by the beasts of this world. But ultimately, what Daniel is saying is that God saved him not because he was not a sinner. We, we read of his confession of sin in a couple of chapters. Daniel knew he was a sinner. God delivers him because he does not deserve the punishment handed down by the king. But even more than that, Daniel spoke better than he knew. God delivers him because the true lion of the tribe of Judah was sinless in his place. This is how the language here points us to the sacrificial lamb slaughtered by the beastly nations, but the lamb by which eternal life was brought to the world. Both Daniel and our Lord emerged victorious through the power of an indestructible life. And this points us to to our salvation. We, We are saved because of our blamelessness. As the late R.C. Sproul used to say, we are saved by works. It's not our blamelessness. And it's not our works. It's the blamelessness and works of another. Our righteous substitute. The greater Daniel. That is the life and the salvation that we receive. The resurrection that we receive when we bow to Him in faith. Delivered by the blamelessness of the Lamb. At the end of the day though, just like our Lord Jesus and just like it's true for all of us, we cannot miss that Daniel was not saved from the trial. God could have stopped him from entering the den. God chose to save Daniel through the trial. 
through the furnace as we saw with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The way of the cross is the way of the crown. But because Daniel was willing to lose his life for the sake of the Lord, he saved it. Because he placed loyalty to God above loyalty to King, he ended up being blameless before them both. But the same is not true of the adversaries. We'll see, as we see in verse 24, they, those who accused him, were thrown to the lions. They were overpowered by them and all of their bones were broken. Not a bone of Daniel's was broken. Not a bone of the Passover lamb was broken. Not a bone of the Lord Jesus Christ was broken. But the wages of sin is, though, is that, that those who dig a pit fall into it. And those who scheme to destroy the people of God are ensnared in their own plot. Every single time that the seed of the woman is delivered and saved, the seed of the serpent is crushed because the Gospel cuts both ways. We can't accept the good news of Daniel if we don't accept the bad news of Daniel and come to grips with it. That those who trusted in the king, who trusted in the, in the kingdoms of this world, who refused to bow to the Lord, were in the end consumed and destroyed and judged in the pit. And yet the remarkable thing is the one we might expect to be judged, the king, does not end up like we might anticipate. Because the chapter closes with another profession of faith from another pagan king, just like Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4. And we see then that this Daniel from the tribe of Judah through the den of lions is used to bring light to the Gentiles once again. And the chapter closes with Daniel prospering through the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus. We know that through Cyrus, the decree will come to end the exile. Daniel, as a symbol of the kingdom of God, has endured to the end. The kingdom, this kingdom will outlast all others. This is the triumph, the tribe of Judah. This is the triumph of the lion from the tribe of Judah. It's the triumph of the Lord Jesus Christ, who Himself conquered through suffering, who descended to the pit and emerged victorious, became the source of salvation for all who believe in Him, and serves as a light to the Gentiles to bring them the knowledge of God. Brethren, as we conclude, let us hear these warnings from Daniel. The danger of compromise Let's not be surprised when the world hates us and rages against us. Let us be fervent in cultivating a fear of God that casts out all other fears. Let us be constant in prayer as the means by which we endure. Let us know that we conquer and triumph only through faith. That's how, through faith, God's people stop the mouths of lions. Let us know that despite the roaring of the beast and the power of the kings, the kingdom of God will endure forever. Let us see our sinless Savior and substitute descend from the pit and emerge out of it victorious as our own certain and sure promise of our own resurrection at the last day. May God give us the grace to receive these things in faith. Let's pray.